you listen to what the media is telling us, you'll find uh, uh, varying degrees of opinions of what uh, certain behaviors and certain people and certain things are the scourge of our society and, um, and the scourge of our nation. But the scourge of our nation is not racism. The scourge of our nation right now is not um, uh, President Trump or Nancy Pelosi. The scourge of our nation is not coronavirus. The scourge of our society is not the Republican parties or the Democratic parties. Um, the scourge of our nation, I believe in my heart, is, uh, is pride. And, and if you think about it, and you think about these different things, where would it all be without pride? Where would... Where would I, Racism be without pride? It wouldn't be. Um, where would riots and looting be without pride? Uh, the Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 1, it says, uh, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not uh, hence even of your lusts that war in your members? So, fighting, wars, all of that would be non existent if it weren't for pride um, and that w- weren't for that desire to fulfill. Uh, what is what is us? What is in us, and what we want over and above everything else? That word lust is covetousness. It's it's unbridled desires. How many broken families would there be without pride? Where would churches be without pride? Honestly, there'd probably be fewer of them. Um, and uh, you know, there's so much pride going around, and I want to make it clear that today's message is not about somebody else's pride. It's not about the pride that is causing problems out there. It's not about uh, uh, the pride, the, the people that are making your life difficult or my life difficult today. Today's message is not about the pride that my family members have that makes it hard for me to live with them. Today's message uh, is about our pride as individuals, our selfishness, our never-ending quest for self-fulfillment on a personal level. And when I say pride, I'm not just referring to a sense of being more important than others. When I say pride today, I mean all these things that stem from pride, and that would be uh, 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 thoughts of superiority, selfishness, egotism, impatience, self-sufficiency, and general lack of consideration towards others. In fact, egotism, uh, I looked it up uh, to see what the definition was, and it's defined as this. It's the practice of talking and thinking about oneself excessively because of an undue sense of self-importance. I looked up selfishness. And selfishness is defined by the dictionary as the quality of being selfish. That didn't help me a lot. All right. So I looked up selfish. And selfish says, uh, is defined as, the lack, as lacking consideration for others, concerned chiefly with one's own personal profit or pleasure. Now go to Philippians, if you will, with me. Philippians chapter 2. And we'll look at verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. And that's where we'll be mainly today is in uh, Philippians chapter 2. And, uh, and then we'll go off to another passage. But uh, when we do that, keep your marker there in Philippians chapter 2 because we'll be returning there. But Philippians 2, 3, and 4, it says this, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. One of the first thoughts that will come to mind during the next few minutes um, 
is, man, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this message. I wish my husband or my wife would really pay attention. I wish my kids would really pay attention to this because they need it. And, um, and so that right there, those thoughts are born of pride most of the time. Um, each of those thoughts is almost always born out of pride because now we're looking on things of others, but not in the way the Bible says, but we're trying to pick out flaws in others instead of trying to look at and trying to say, okay, God, where is it in my life that I need your word today? And so that's uh, what I hope that we'll, the attitude that we'll have this morning is, God, what is it in my life that I need to change today? There is a price that is paid when we choose to be proud. The price of pride is destruction. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says this, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. When we started the kids zone this summer, uh, the kids started learning about different flavors. We associated different flavors with different things. We talked about sin being bitter. We talked about God being good. In fact, our, uh, our, uh, our theme verse for, for kids zone is Psalm uh, 34.8. Oh, taste and see that the, that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. And we talked about God being good and leaving a good taste in your mouth. We talked about the deceit of Satan trying to, trying to make things taste good. And he may sugarcoat things that in the end is bitter for us. But in the second week, we talked about uh, the word sour. And, uh, and, and because of sin and because of attitudes that creep up and because of bitterness, uh, sour attitudes can creep up into people. And we use the, uh, the example of a man named Absalom. And so I'd like to dive into the story of Absalom this, uh, uh, this morning in a deeper way than, than we did in the kids' zone. And I'd like to look at the, at the backstory of Absalom. If you've never heard of Absalom, uh, today you'll get his whole, his whole story about what the Bible says about him. So if you'll go to Philippians chapter, or, or sorry, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 14, right before you go there, let me read the rest of Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 3 through 8. And I want you to take note of these verses, and as we go into the story of Absalom and David and his brother Amnon and his sister Tamar, I want you all to see and pick out these, these attributes that were or were not practiced in the lives of these four individuals. But let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 8. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man unto his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, um, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now flip over to... Second uh, Samuel, Second Samuel, chapter fourteen. Okay, and before we're not going to read the whole chapter there uh, or the whole story. The, the story of Amnon starts in like chapter uh, twelve or thirteen, so we're not going to read all the way from chapter twelve or thirteen because it ends in chapter nineteen. So we're not going to read all of those. Uh, we'd spend the whole time reading those, and uh, and then Pastor wouldn't like that very much. So, um, but. I'll give you the rundown of what's happened so far, all right? At this point, David is king of Israel, okay? David, the same David that killed Goliath, the same David that succeeded uh, uh, the wicked king Saul. Uh, he is now king of Israel. He has multiple wives, and he has sons and daughters. And one of these daughters was named Tamar. Tamar was a beautiful girl. 
uh, so beautiful and so good was she that, that she caught the eye of one of her half-brothers. Okay, weird. Uh, but his name was Amnon, all right? So Amnon, he's going around the palace. He's seeing his sister every day. And, and, and he tells his friend, you know what? My sister, she's pretty. And that just sounds weird. I don't know. But anyway, this is what, basically this is what happened. And okay, chapter 13, you can read it. It starts there. He says, man, I, I'm just so sick with love over my sister. And it wasn't love. It was lust. It was his desire to, to fill his, his own needs there. And, and, and he tells his friend, uh, that really ends up being his cousin, he goes, man, I, I, I just love my sister. And he and his friend devise a plan so that Amnon can seduce Tamar. And they put this plan into action. And, uh, and Amnon desired her, and, and they put this plan into action, and Amnon pretends to be sick. And David says, Amnon, what can I do for you? How can you make me? He goes, nothing would make me feel any better except if Tamar were to come and make dinner in my room and feed it to me. And so David's like, sure, Amnon. And he sends Tamar and he says, hey, go take care of your brother. And, uh, and so Tamar goes and makes Amnon food. And, uh, and the Bible says that Amnon grabs a hold of her and he says, Tamar, lie with me. She goes, no. She refuses his advances, and, uh, and so at that point, uh, Amnon forces himself upon Tamar. Amnon rapes Tamar, and at the end, he goes, I don't like you anymore, and uh, goes on with his life. Two years pass, and David looks at Amnon, and he's mad. The Bible said that he was wroth. He was angry. But he didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. Nothing. Well, Tamar has a full brother named Absalom. And the Bible says that Absalom looked at Amnon. He was angry. But then the Bible says that Absalom said nothing to Amnon, good or bad. But in the space of two years, Absalom is planning revenge. From the day that he found out about what happened to Tamar... Absalom's wheels in his head start turning. He's, I'm going to get back at Amnon. Dad's not doing anything about it. I'm going to do something about this. And he starts planning and planning. He orchestrates the murder of Amnon. And then, for fear of David, Absalom flees. And Absalom lives in exile for three years. At the beginning... David wanted to see Absalom, and he, the Bible says that he longed for Absalom. But as time goes by, David has no inclination of ever allowing Absalom back into Jerusalem, the capital, or back home. And after three years, David finally, after being persuaded by one of his counselors and one of his generals, Joab, he allows Absalom back to Jerusalem. So, it's been three years, and David finally says, fine, Absalom can come back to Jerusalem. Look at chapter 14, verse 23 and 24. It says, so Joab, who counseled David, who, who convinced David uh, 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 to let Absalom back home, okay, says Joab went to Geshur, that's where Absalom was, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him turn to his own house. And let him not see my face. 
Skip down to verse 28. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. He's out for three years in Geshur, kind of exiled from his family, from Jerusalem, from the capital. And David doesn't want to have anything to do with him there. David finally says, fine, let him come back. And when he comes in Jerusalem, he says to Joab, Joab, tell Absalom to go to his house. I don't want to look at him. And for two years, Absalom lives in his house and never sees his father's face. David lives for five years pretending that Absalom doesn't exist. And look at verse 29. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab sorry, to have him sent to the king. But Joab, he would not come. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore he said unto his servant, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servant set the field on fire. And Joab arose and came to Absalom unto his house, and he said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered, Joab, behold, I have sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king to say, Wherefore am I come from Geshur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there be any injury, or sorry, any iniquity in me, let him kill me. And so Absalom is reaching out to David. Absalom is trying to see his father's face. David won't, won't have him. So Absalom reaches out to the, to the messenger, to the, to the counselor, to the general that helped bring Joab back from, from exile in the first place to Joab. Joab says, nope, David doesn't want to see you, so I'm not going to see you. And, uh, and Absalom basically throws a fit, sets Joab's uh, uh, field on fire because he's not getting any attention. And Joab says, hey, what are you doing? And he says, hey, finally got your attention. Now listen, go tell dad, why am I back from Geshur? If I'm sitting here in, in Jerusalem under house arrest, basically, which is if you keep on reading, you see that, that David kept really close tabs on, on, on Absalom. If I'm sitting here in Jerusalem... And dad won't see my face. What's the point of me even being here? Go say, go tell dad that let me see his face. And if he's still mad at me, just let him kill me and be done with it. So David finally sees Absalom. Look at verse 33. It says, so Joab came to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. And David finally sees Absalom. He greets his son and kisses him. But remember what we said the price of pride was. It's destruction. And after five years of a prideful heart, destruction had been caused. A simple meet and greet and a kiss on the cheek was not going to suffice for Absalom anymore. That relationship had been destroyed. I encourage you to read uh, 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 2 Samuel verses, or chapters 12 through 18 so you can kind of see the progression of destruction and where it all started. And we'll, we'll give a rundown of that later. But you'll be able to see the pride in each person's life, the selfishness in each person's life, and the destruction that it causes as time goes by. What happens next is this, though. Absalom raises an army. And he begins to extend his influence over Israel. David's been king for a while now. People are 
pretty happy with David. And they go in and they talk to David and, and they seek audience with him and David makes time for everybody else. And Absalom starts to stand at the gate of the palace and when people come to the palace, he begins to steal their hearts, the Bible says. People come to the palace to seek audience with the king and, and they say, and Absalom says, what are you here for? Oh, we're here to see David. And Absalom says, David doesn't have time for you. David didn't have time for me for five years. He doesn't have time for you. But you know what? I have time for you. And he'd listen to their complaints. And he'd go and send people to fix their problems. And the Bible says, And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And he stole their loyalty. And after four years or so, he's gathered up an army. He's gathered up a loyal following. And, uh, and he takes 200 men with them out. And he tells his dad, Dad, you know, can I have permission to go and pay my vows to the Lord? And, and, and he deceives David, and David says, sure, go. And, and when Absalom leaves, messengers come back to David, and they say, David, that's not what Absalom's going for. Absalom's raising against you, rising against you, and he's going to come back and try and kill you. And so David takes all his family, and they run out of the palace, they leave, and David leaves ten concubines there. Okay? And, uh, and so... Uh, Absalom, sure enough, goes back and David's gone and he begins to hunt his own father. He takes control of the palace and in this time he's counseled by his friends, hey, put your dad in his place. Those ten concubines that he left here, go rape him out in front of everybody so everybody can see and see that you are now in charge. And so he does that. Eventually there's a battle that takes place between Absalom and those that are remaining loyal to David. And David commands before the battle, he says, if we win and you have a chance, capture Absalom, don't kill him. He tells his generals, don't kill Absalom. And Absalom's army loses. And 20,000 men die that day. In the wake of his defeat, Absalom is riding on his mule through a forest where most of the battle took place. And his long hair that he was so proud of gets caught in a tree and his mule rides off out from underneath him and he's hanging there from his hair. Just kind of helpless and waiting for somebody to come by. And as he's being chased, the people that were chasing him come up on Absalom. There he is, hanging from a tree. Prize to be picked, literally, like a fruit. And there he is hanging. And so Joab comes in and he goes, Hey, why haven't y'all killed him? And the guy says, no, don't you remember what David said? I heard David tell you, Joab, and all the other generals, nobody touches Absalom to hurt him. But Joab is so angry. The Bible says he takes three darts and puts them through Absalom's heart. And then the people that were with Joab, Joab's armor bearers, he had ten people that assisted him in everything, finish off Absalom. And so Absalom is killed and Absalom is destroyed. Let's look at the price of pride in David and Absalom's life, though. The end result is this. It's a nation with divided loyalties. 20,000 men dead over what boils down to be a father-son dispute. Though David wanted to show mercy to his son in the end, secondhand bitterness cost Absalom his life. And this is all in chapter 18 and 19, but let's move backwards. And let's find the first issue of pride. 
Because pride begets pride. And the price of pride is destruction. And many things are destroyed along the way before the 20,000 men died, before the nation is divided against itself. So let's move back from here. What started this battle? Well, pride in Absalom's heart to think that he deserved to run the country instead of his father. I can only imagine what Absalom was thinking because the Bible doesn't really tell us Absalom's thoughts. But imagine being in Absalom's shoes and seeing the inaction of a father and then seeing the despair from a father to a son and going, man, I could run this country so much better than David could. I imagine that's what Absalom was thinking. And, but this pride was preceded in the pride of David's pride, refusing to see his son for five years, which was preceded by Absalom's selfish act of revenge upon his brother Amnon, which was preceded by David's lack of punishment of his son Amnon. David didn't make the time nor have the courage to confront sin and division in his own family. And this is pride. This is, well, I'll just let it slide. I'll just, I don't know. A lot of times we think of pride as, oh, me being much more important. But, but pride manifests itself in not wanting to do the things that you're supposed to do. It's pride to say, well, you know, I know better. David knew he should have confronted Amnon. David knew the laws of the Lord. He knew that there should have been certain things done. And he didn't. This, of course, brought uh, uh, Amnon's... Sin was brought on by pride and the selfishness of Amnon and the unlawful desire and raping of his sister Tamar. And all these things go back to a time years before when David was being neglectful of his duties as a king, which also stems from pride. Instead of, the Bible says, in a time where the kings went to war, David said, ah, I've been going to war for so long. I'll send my army to go to war for me, and I'll just stay back at home. I don't need to do that. I get some me time. That's pride. And in this time, David takes a midnight stroll through to, uh, on the top of his palace, and he sees a woman bathing. And he, he goes and inquires about her. And they tell her, that woman's name is Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the wife of one of your most faithful and loyal soldiers, Uriah. And Uriah has been with you since, since Solomon was chasing you, or since Saul was chasing you. And, uh, and David, in complete disregard for God's law, without the thought about his friend and trusted subject, acting completely on the attitude of I am king and I deserve and I can get whatever I want to, David sends for Bathsheba and sleeps with her. We know the story. Bathsheba ends up pregnant and pride once again strikes the heart of, David's, uh, of David. And David says, instead of, oh, I must confess, he says, I must cover up. And he tries multiple times to cover up the sin. And he can't. So in the end, pride again strikes. And instead of saying, <laughs> David gone, this isn't working out. I just need to confess. David goes, no, no, I know how to do this. I'll kill Uriah. And he sends Uriah and, and, and sends for the murder of Uriah. Says, hey, there's, there's, there's fighting on the front lines. 
Joab put Uriah right there at the heat of the battle. Tell everybody a signal of when to fall back, but don't tell Uriah. And Joab gives the signal to fall back, and Uriah is surrounded and killed by the enemy. And David goes, ha, it worked out anyway. I'm good. Nobody's ever going to find out. And finally, the prophet Nathan confronts David about it. He finally admits his sin to the prophet of God, but only because at this point there is no denying it. And through David and the prophet Nathan's conversation that follows, we understand that the consequences of David's initial pride and selfishness and desires to look after his own self, that is the catalyst for everything happening with Tamar, Amnon, and Absalom. It all started with David being neglectful and prideful and looking out for his own self and his own desires and basically being lazy and wanting to take care of his own self. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. We've seen pride begets pride, and the price of pride is destruction. So how do we fight it? How do we turn it around? Well, Philippians chapter 2 gives us three things. The verses from 3 through 11 gives us three things. One, it gives us a set of instructions. Then it gives us an example, and it gives us a point of focus. And so I want to... I'm going to look at uh, uh, verses 3 through 4 first, and we'll see the set of instructions. We're called to be servants. We're called to serve Christ. We're called to serve others. And this is a calling that has no room for pride. We are called to love and to exhibit the kind of love that Jesus showed. And this love is a sacrificial love. This type of love is so against our nature that God, when he, when he writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, tells us more about what love is not than what love is. I encourage you, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when you go home. Read verses 1 through 8, and you'll see more descriptions of what charity or love is not than what love is. And I think it is because it's so against our nature and we have such a misconception of what love is that we often think, oh, I know what love is. And one of the biggest things about love is that it has nothing to do with us. If I am the one loving, it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my selfish desires, my wants, my goals, my anything. It doesn't have anything to do with my well-being, my status, or anything like that. And you'll see that in 1 Corinthians 13. And yet it's a sacrificial, but it's a sacrificial love. Pride and selfishness permeates us so thoroughly that it is a constant struggle to fight against it. It's a difficult thing to learn to rip our focus off of ourselves and to put it on Jesus Christ and on the others that he loves. And this is why the top two commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so look at Philippians chapter 2. I believe it's the single passage in the Bible that, that most thoroughly Uh, describes how we're supposed to combat pride and selfishness. And we'll look at verse 3 and start looking here. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. We'll stop there. The instructions start off with, Let nothing be done, do nothing because of strife. Don't do anything through strife. That means don't do anything because of or to start strife. Fighting. Okay? Pain. I think most of us here are familiar with the phrase, Hurting people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. 
Uh, and it's, it's a phrase that, is, that helps us to understand that why some people act out and hurt others. But it is not a phrase to excuse our behavior or to excuse others' behaviors. Because the Bible tells us very clearly, when you're hurt, don't do anything because of the hurt. Don't let the hurt drive you to do things. Don't let the hurt and the pain control you to go and do things. A lot of times we go, well, so-and-so hurt me, so I have a right to act this way. I have a right to say this thing. I have a right to have this attitude, this hate, this bitterness, this anger, whatever the case might be. The Bible says, let nothing be done through strife. And then it says, or vainglory. Do nothing through strife or vainglory. That word vainglory means self-conceit. It is inordinate pride in oneself. Our actions, our attitudes are not um, to be guided by how great we think we are. There should be no words that come out of our mouth that drive us, uh, that are driven to make us look better. The job of the servant is to bring glory to the master, not to the servant. Our words and our deeds must bring the spotlight onto God and his attributes uh, and exalt him rather than exalt us. Thirdly, it continues saying, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Lowliness of mind, this means to be humble. It means to think humbly. I believe everybody is, is capable of acting humbly, at least for a little while, but it's not a permanent thing until we learn to think humbly. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, it says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, so we are transformed in what we do and in our inner selves by thinking a different way. But verse 3 continues on. It says, For I say through, uh, through the grace given unto me that every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God had dealt to every man. When the Bible tells us to be, it is, uh, it is said that, 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 that being a certain thing is attained by how we think. Being godly is attained by thinking godly. Being humble, truly being humble, is attained by thinking humble. And how am I supposed to think then? Well, the verse continues, it says, In loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. The word esteem deals with how we consider or judge or think about other things. In this case, people. How are we to think of others? We're to think of them as better than ourselves. And this flies in the face of everything that we are taught growing up. And everything that we're used to hearing. My point of view is just as valid as yours. Your feelings are just as important as mine. Everyone is just as important as everyone else. And you know what the Bible says? The attitude that you and I should have as Christians that I am not as important as everybody else. And it flies in the face of what we're taught as Americans. Everybody, everybody, you're just as important, and your point of view is just as important as everybody else. God tells me to think of my, my point of view and my importance as less than everybody else. That I am not important, and that I am not as important as everyone else, and that my needs are not as important as other people's needs. And I wrote this down right here, and I'm going to read it because this happened. And as soon as it happened, I said I have to write it down. It says, and I wrote this. It's ridiculous how easy it is to slip into selfishness and pride. I wrote this last night. As I was finishing the last paragraph, Ian and Tasha were practicing the piano, 
and cello for tomorrow's, today's service. <clears throat> they called to me from the piano and said they needed some help to find a certain note on the cello. Well, I was busy. I was editing the sermon I was going to be preaching, that I am preaching right now. So grudgingly, I went out and I helped. By the way, my, ap- my attitude was absolutely amazing. Okay, not really. It was stunning, but not in the right way. It was a simple thing to point out, and it was something that either of them could have done on their own, and I told them so. On my way back to the bedroom, I was thinking about where, where I had left off and how was I going to, to get back in the zone after yet another distraction. I sat down on the bed and grabbed my laptop and read that I am not as important as everyone else and my needs are not as important as other people's needs. You know how embarrassing it is to get up and go back to your son and say sorry? So that's what I did. I got up, put the laptop down, back to the piano room, grabbed Ian by the head and hugged him, not by the neck, okay? He was sitting down, so he was head, head height was here. So I grabbed him by the head, I gave him a kiss, I hugged him, I said, I'm sorry. And apologized to him and Tasha. See how easy it is to get sucked into pride? See how easy it is when, when you're preparing a lesson and a sermon on pride to get sucked into pride? It's so easy. And we do it without a second thought. Now that my mind is set to thinking humbly, what's the other instruction to do here? Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I'm thinking humbly now. So now, what is the action? I'm not to be self-centered. I'm to look on others' needs and have sympathy with others in whatever state they may be. The Bible says we are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Competitors in any calling find that thing a difficult, uh, find that a very difficult thing to do. So how are we supposed to look on others? Remember the story of the Good Samaritan. We find it in Luke chapter 10. And a man, a man is, is, is assaulted and beaten and left for dead on the road to Jericho. And a priest comes by and he looks at him and he sees him and he goes off afar. And doesn't do anything about it. And a Levite comes by and he looks at him and he, he comes up to the scene of the crime and, and looks at him. And then he leaves. And then a Samaritan man who, who, who because of cultural and, and racial differences just naturally doesn't get along with Jews, sees this Jewish man laying down and, 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 and takes care of him. Takes his time and takes care of him and puts him on his own donkey and they go to a, to a hotel and he puts him in this hotel and he says, hey, here's some money, take care of the guy and I'll be on my way back in a few days. If he spends more money than what I've given you, I'll cover it when I come back. He doesn't say, make sure that guy leaves me a thank you card. Give him my information. He just says, take care of him and I'll pay it. And he does. He looks upon another man. But this Samaritan looked upon this man who should have been his enemy in a totally different way than this man by his own countrymen was looked upon by the priest and the Levite. How are we supposed to look upon others the way the Samaritan did? And verse 5 sums up our instructions very, very well. Philippians 2.5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Think like Jesus. So now we're thinking and we're doing and we have received the instructions. So Paul gives an example very quickly. It's very important, though. The example that Paul gives us is the ultimate example, the prime example, and that's Jesus Christ. 
Verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but, was, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The example that we have is Christ. How humble are we supposed to be as humble as Jesus was, who made himself of no reputation? He was born as a pauper. By all rights, he should have been born in a palace. He taught and served others when by all rights, he should have been served and worshipped by all those around him. He died the most shameful uh, 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 way imaginable and didn't deserve any of it. Listen, the way that Jesus died and when Jesus died, he died close to, to the Passover. He was on a cross close to the Passover. Jews from all over the Roman Empire had come there to celebrate the Passover. There were people in Jerusalem that day that didn't know who Jesus was, but when they walked across and they saw those three crosses up on that hill, they looked at their children and they said, Don't be like that man. And they didn't even know who Jesus was. Don't be like that man or you'll end up like him. Beaten, naked, and ashamed up on a cross. Don't be a criminal like that. Be a better person than that. And they didn't even know Jesus. And instead of Jesus saying, hey, these other two, these are thieves, but I was good. I was wrongfully accused. The Bible says that like a lamb led to slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And he did all this for our benefit. Because he was looking on our things instead of his own. That is the example that you and I have. The question in the light of this example is, am I treating, am I talking to, Am I thinking about other people like Jesus? Well, if I do that all the time, won't that just be terribly inconvenient? Yep. Quite often, in fact. God bless America, but instead of thinking and seeking of His glory with all of our freedoms and all of our rights and all of our advancement and wealth as a nation, we've relaxed into an attitude of superiority and entitlement. I deserve... No, we don't. It's about time we renew our minds into the mindset of Christ. And that's why Philippians 2.5 says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That word let means it's a choice. You have to let it. And I have to let it. We either let Christ's mind dominate us or we don't. We have the instructions, we have the example, and the point of focus is this. Verses 9 through 11 say, who Jesus is and what God made of Jesus. It says, Wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and of things in earth and of things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not Michael Jones is Lord. Not any other name that you want to put in there. Jesus Christ is Lord. Which means that I'm a servant. I can't go around going, I'm a servant, look at me. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for the servant to glory in, in being a servant. The only glory we have is the glory of who Jesus is. And we weren't good enough to be made servants of Jesus. We were so bad that Jesus extended his goodness toward us and made us servants and made us children and made us co-heirs with Christ. 
We didn't deserve it. There is no reason for any of us to boast. There is no reason for any of us to think of others higher. There's no reason for me to lift myself above my wife and my kids. There's no reason to lift myself above my neighbors and above my enemies. Because according to the Bible, I'm supposed to think of them first. To think of them as better than myself. That's our point of focus. And frankly, it doesn't matter if those who I'm dealing with are humble or not. Humility is this thing that when we finally say, yep, I'm humble, we lost it. Humility is this. Well, I'm being humble, but they're not. I lost it. Out of the words of a humble person can never proceed the words, but they're not being humble. Or, I am humble. The only person that I can control is me. I can't even do that very well. Much less another person. I can choose to let the humility of Christ reign in me, or I can let pride destroy me and those around me. I can let it seep into my family and destroy my family. I can let it seep into my relationships, of my friendships, of my enemieships, and let it destroy that. We have a nation, we're watching the, the, the effects of pride everywhere. And look around, it's just crumbling. Everything is crumbling because of pride. It's after all killing our nation, it's killing our families because the price of pride is destruction. That's the price of pride. I know the message this morning was not about salvation, but not getting saved is pride also. Putting it off till later or saying, I don't need it, is pride. And the price of that pride is eternal destruction. I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we start the invitation. Thank you all for listening very well. Maybe you're here this morning and God's pointed out areas in your life where there's pride. I've recently counseled a couple that, not from here, but it was a hard thing to do. Because I counseled them as each of them needed, but every time you would point something out, they'd say, oh, but this other person, but my husband, but my wife. But the only person that you can control is you. And maybe God's pointing out certain things in your life, but the first thing we like to do is go, but Lord, you don't understand this other person that I'm dealing with. And God does understand, but he's not going to counsel you for them. He's going to counsel you for you. He's going to counsel me for me. Maybe God's pointed out something in your heart. 